Welcome to another inspirational message by Pastor Ron Hammonds, Senior Pastor at Golden Triangle Church on the Rock in Beaumont, Texas. For more information about Church on the Rock and Ron Hammonds Ministries, visit cotr.com. All right. Open up your Bibles, if you would. We're going to be going to the book of Colossians. Colossians. Uh, you'll find it, you know, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. It's to the farther to the right from Corinthians. You know, if you happen to get to the Timothy and, you know, Thessalonians and Titus, you've gone too far. Okay, back a little way right there in front of Thessalonians, you'll find it. If you're using the old-fashioned Bible, if you happen to be using, you know, something electronic, you just push on the one that says Colossians, okay, and it'll pop up. And if you are, you know, the Bible uh, says that God has written the Word in our heart and in our mind, and so, you know, uh, if, 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 you're, uh, if you're carrying it there in your heart this morning, then I'm going to encourage you to add some of these scriptures that we will show on the overhead this morning to those uh, verses in your heart. And today, the title of our message is, you know, it, it sounds, you know, what makes me title a message the way I title it? Hmm. Have you ever thought about the strategy or the theory? Why does Pastor Ron make these titles? Yeah, uh, Jessica does the title slide. And she's going, yes, I do wonder why you do it. Well, as you know, on, from the big worldwide interweb, uh, that's supposed to be funny, by the way. The interwebs are woven together. And they're woven together in such a way that it creates a searchable database. You know? And so uh, at times what I try to do is create something that someone may at some time Google. And if they happen to Google something depends on how many people have accessed that prior, it kind of goes up on the front page list. For example, if you were to Google Pastor Ron Hammonds, okay, you can see, I don't know now, but I used to occupy the first, you know, the top 16 pages or so. Uh, these are just things that we try to make sure that we get the word out, okay? Um, and... Uh, Wednesday night, the title of my message was Schisms and Heresies. Well, you, know, you all listened to Wednesday night. It was great. It was a good family moment of encouraging us to not allow family division in this season. But when we go to family gatherings in this part of the time of the year, to make sure that you are reaching out to the person that, you know, um, may have been separated from the family last year or had been going through difficulties or, you know, is not, you know, and, and make sure that we don't allow divisions. We don't allow, you know, little cliques in our families. That's what God was hoping because that's what he hopes for his family. He hopes you do the same thing at church. Uh, but somewhere, someone's going to Google heresies. And when they do, guess what? We're going to pop up there with a the word. You might say, well, do people really do that? Do people really search the Internet? Well, even if they're not searching for, for you know, Bible material, it still pops up. If they're searching for Bible material, it might pop up a little more. They might narrow their search. But we still had, this past month, 4,844 people go to the website where I put my sermons. It's our website, easysermons.com. 
uh, yeah, uh, ezsermons.com, 4,844. You know, effectively 5,000 people a month go there just to find a sermon to preach. Isn't that great? Yeah. I mean, from all over the world, only, only 1,700 of those were from the U.S. I mean, there was 114 from Austria. Yeah. You know, people are looking for things to preach or looking for things to, to uh, words from God to encourage them. And so they search sermon databases of which, which uh, we host one and have for I don't know how many years. Uh, years and years and years and years. Okay. So I was trying to imagine. Uh, I was thinking about preachers and, you know, uh, how could they find a good message? Because there's not a lot of information on this particular Bible character. And so, in fact, I've never heard a message on this Bible character. And I went on, Sunday, on Saturday whenever I was studying this man and tried to read anything I could find on him. I couldn't find stuff. I thought, you know, some preacher somewhere down the road is going to be in the same place. He's going to know something about this guy. Well, since I have done all these years of study and all this research, I decided to include his name in the title. And so um, his name is Demas. Who in the world is Demas? We're going to find out. But the title of my message, Luke and Demas. <laughs> there you go. Anybody that goes and uh, wants to see what, you know, Luke, anything about Luke or anything, especially anything about Demas, this will pop up. And so uh, you have to endure my sermon titles, all right? But uh, we create them uh, with, with an opportunity for people to be able to access them. Because uh, this guy is only mentioned, you know, like three times. But yet he holds a place in what God wants to teach us today. Open up your hearts this morning. Every sermon is designed by God to change your life forever. Today should affect you. It should lead you to making a decision today. You should decide today that what I'm going to say is going to change your heart, change your mind, change your direction, going to challenge you, or it's going to be something that you can take with you that you can take to others in days to come to encourage them, to challenge them, to help them make a decision for their life. Every word of God is designed to change our lives. Even Colossians 4, verse 14. Okay, are you ready? Colossians 4, verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Hey, that's all I got today. I want to thank you all for coming. <laughs> the book of Colossians was written about the year A.D. 62. Okay, hold that number in your head. About A.D. 62, when the world was standing on the brink of chaos and change, tensions were building as loyalties were being challenged, loyalties in the church and loyalties in the Roman government, things were afoot 
A generational transition was close at hand in A.D. 62, and, and uh, it, it, it looked like that, that the younger and stronger leaders which were emerging on the scene, both in the church and in the Roman Empire, it looked like they were being positioned to take over, and, and, and they had strong opinions about what was going on, and, and they had perspectives concerning what they wanted for the future. Soon after 62, Rome would burn. And the people of Rome would blame it on the emperor, Nero. And he, in turn, would shift the blame to the Christians. And during this particular time in the church, the church was being persecuted and the church was scattered and, and it was undergoing some of the strongest opposition by religious leaders and by the governor of Rome as well. And, and standing up and speaking out during these days was apt to get you arrested. It was apt to get you stoned, crucified, or beheaded. It was no time in this particular season to be pointed out as someone who was a potential leader of the next phase. And yet, even though all this was going on, the Roman Empire, even though the Roman Empire was trying to protect itself and Nero was trying to protect himself, yet the Roman Empire was growing smaller, it was growing weaker, it was growing dimmer. While all along the church being persecuted was yet expanding and it was growing stronger and its light was shining brighter and was doing more and going farther and faster and accomplishing the Great Commission more than ever. By A.D. 62, God was well on His way to raising up leaders for the next generation church. A.D. 62. We have a record of the Apostle Paul gathering many of his disciples from the cities that he had visited on his missionary journeys. And he invested time in them, giving them opportunities to begin running their lap in their generation for Christ. Every generation has a lap that it runs. Every generation, it lasts about 40 years of dynamic service and then God raises up another generation, raises up more leaders and empowers them and encourages them and releases them to ministry to carry and shoulder the burden of the gospel and to make sure that the Great Commission is accomplished in that generation. It happens in governments as well. Here the Apostle Paul had been gathering disciples during his missionary journey. Specifically young men like Timothy and Titus, young men like Mark and Luke, young men like Silas and Epaphras, and also a young man named Demas. They were Paul's students, if you will. They were students in the ministry and they served the apostle Paul while he was teaching them how to do the work of God and how to understand the Word of God. He was pouring himself into their lives, making an investment in them while they gave their life and served the ministry that God had given him. Just as Jesus had done with his disciples 40 years earlier, we saw Jesus gathering together men 
women as well leaving their, their, their daily duties and following him. And Jesus teaching them. Women like Mary and Martha. Women like Mary Magdalene. Men like Peter and James and John, Nathaniel and Matthew. Jesus had done the very same thing. He had gathered disciples and he had taught them and invested in them while they served in the ministry. He taught them how to understand the word and how to do the work of God. And then in a day he put it on their shoulders. And now 40 years later we were seeing the next generational transition looming large on the scene. The path of ministry which God had given the apostle Paul included some jail time for Paul. <laughs> but if you read through the scriptures, you'll find that not only was the apostle Paul in jail, but also, you know, his disciples like Silas in Acts 16 went right to jail with him. You know, in, in AD 62, by the time we get to AD 62, we see the apostle Paul in prison once again. He is in a Roman prison. This time he's under house arrest by the Roman government. So that rather than being in that deep dark dungeon, in that scary place, rather than being in chains as he had been before, he's given a house to live in and people can come and visit him. We talked about that on Wednesday night and also last Sunday. It's not that bad of a place. But along with the Apostle Paul being imprisoned in Rome, his disciples also had to be there. This was a little more difficult being in a Roman prison during that season, again about A.D. 62. It was a little more difficult than, say, being the disciple of the pastor in the church in Thessalonica where there was not much persecution and, there, you know, and the church was growing and everything was going well. And, and uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, but, you know, God has a will and has a path and has a journey and has a preparation for every person. And God tends to prepare us for the work which he has for us, which is yet ahead of us in life. And nothing tempers quite as good as fire. Nothing tempers quite as good as a little controlled heat. And God tends to put people in the fires that will temper them for the work to which he has called them. Thank you. Can I get a glory? And God knows how much each individual can stand. And God understands what work he has called us to. God understands what he needs us to do in our future, our part to play in destiny, our position in his plan. And he prepares us in turn. 
As I said, nothing tempers better than a little controlled heat. And believe me when I tell you, God is always in control. In AD 62, Paul was imprisoned, as I said. He was under house arrest and his disciples were with him. This was most likely the first time that many of Paul's disciples had ever been in jail. That they had ever been restricted, that they had ever, you know, you know, uh, been in a place where they were undergoing a little hardship for that to which they had been called. And, and believe me when I tell you that that, that hardship and, and persecution and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, most likely the first time that we encounter a little hardship for Christ or a little persecution for what we believe, do you know there can be some romance, some romantic ideology associated with being persecuted for a cause that you feel is worthy of your undying allegiance? The adventure of being on the front line. The adventure of being in the battle, the adventure of thinking about all the things that you're going through and, and, and bearing up under is bearable and even romantic at times whenever you realize, whenever you believe that you will be victorious. And, and you know, it can often even be intoxicating when you are young and idealistic and you think about going through a fire for Jesus. Paul expected and encouraged those around him in A.D. 62. You can read the writings. You can read the books that he wrote from that prison. Books like, you know, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. And you can see how Paul expected and Paul taught his disciples that they were going to be released. Everything was going to be okay. They were going to get out of prison. He expected to go and show up at, at some of these places. He said, I, I, I will see you later. You get things ready for me. You make a room ready for me. I'm going to visit you shortly. Well, expecting to be released, being under pressure and expecting everything's going to be okay, you know, you can kind of deal with that. And I believe Paul was released. And then perhaps four or five years later, re-arrested. <laughs> Taken back to Rome, not under house arrest this time, but in a, in a prison, in a, in, a, in, a, in a dungeness type of prison under this maniac Emperor Nero with nothing but the promise of death and execution awaiting him and perhaps his followers as well. And when you know it, those disciples had to go right back with him because they were given to serve him until the mantle was passed and until they were released to run their lap. You can't just take off without the baton. The race means nothing. Such pressure must have been on these disciples. It must have been like the pressure that was on Peter. You know, when Peter left everything to follow Jesus and said, you know, I'll die for you. And then all of a sudden, 
He's standing there close to the judgment when Jesus is being judged there, taken and arrested out of the Garden of Gethsemane, and he hears that the sentence is to be scourged and then to be crucified. And all of a sudden, Peter says, I don't know the man. I'm not a part of them. I don't know what cur curse word he used, but the Bible says he, he cussed finally and said, blankety blank, no, I don't know him. I don't know what you would have said, but whatever he said changed the minds of those people because they knew that people that followed Jesus didn't talk like that. Well, in A.D. 62, Paul and his disciples were joyfully enjoying the hardships of prison. They were reaching out with the gospel and writing letters and carrying them around. Oh, you know, things were going great. Uh, they held nothing but, but, but the greatest hope uh, of, of a bright and continuing future for the ministry God had given them. And that year in A.D. 62, that year four men left Rome Four of Paul's disciples, each one of them carrying a letter that was written from Paul. They had this letter in their hand and each one of them were bound for a different destination. They carried a portion of, of what would later uh, become the New Testament. They carried a portion of the New Testament on its first journey in their hands from a prison in Rome. Written from Paul, but they were sent as messengers from God. One of them was named Epaphroditus from Philippi. He carried the epistle to the Philippines. I'm teasing. <laughs> I love that for some reason. I don't know why. He carried with him the word that Paul had written, inspired by the Holy Spirit that we still have today, the letter to the Philippians. A second one was named Titus. He was from Ephesus originally, and he carried the epistle to the Ephesians. A third one was Epaphras. He was from Colossae. And, of course, he carried the the letter that Paul had written, the epistle to the Colossians. A fourth one was Onesimus. You remember we talked about him last Sunday. He was the slave of Philemon. And he carried this letter that Paul had written back to Philemon. A fifth thing to recognize is what we just read in Colossians 4, 14, while Luke and Demas remained behind with Paul in Rome. They remained behind to continue their discipleship training and to serve the apostle Paul while he was under house arrest in A.D. 62. They were continuing their discipleship. They were serving Paul. And these guys carried out, you know, Philippians, Ephesians, you know, Colossians and Philemon. And they went out and they were all happy and all expecting this great future and everything was fine. And Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. They stayed behind with the Apostle Paul. That was A.D. 62. 
Fast forward with me five years to A.D. 67. In A.D. 67, the Roman government is bankrupt. They are bankrupt morally. They are bankrupt financially. Nero had spent them into bankruptcy. And also they are bankrupt spiritually. The persecution of Christians has gotten worse, so much so that they had made human torches out of Christians all throughout the city of Rome. Paul was once again in Nero's prison. He had been released some point earlier and now in A.D. 67 finds himself in a deep, dark dungeon, now under a death sentence. This time he will not be released and he knows it and everybody else knows it. This time he's going to be executed and it is close at hand. Paul writes what I believe was his last letter, the last words we have prior to him being martyred. He writes to his young son, a disciple of his named Timothy. And he writes to Timothy, who is now most likely in Ephesus, now pastoring a church that the apostle Paul had started there some years earlier. This disciple, now carrying the mantle of pastor, now hears from his mentor that Paul expects to die. And he knows it will be soon. And he writes in 2 Timothy 4 to this son in the faith, Timothy. Paul says in verse 10, as he's closing out this letter, Timothy, Demas has forsaken me. Having loved this present world, he is departed to Thessalonica. Only Luke is with me. Wow. Demas has forsaken me. It's only been five years since the previous mention of Demas finds him as, as one of Paul's favored disciples that's standing strong in the prison at Rome, in the same Rome that now five years later, Demas has left him there. Only five years earlier, during Paul's first in prison, Demas was a trusted disciple. Now Demas has forsaken Paul. Listen, for centuries... Many scholars and preachers alike have hunted down Demas. They have hunted Demas like a dog and berated him, trying to, 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 to um, you know, condemn him for turning his back on Jesus and going back to his old ways and abandoning his call and returning to the world. However, 
after almost 40 years of personal studies of these verses, after reading commentary after commentary and researching this matter in full, I'm here to tell you and everyone who may search this in the future that I don't believe that Demas left Christ or his belief in Jesus as Lord and Savior. But rather, I believe Demas was simply afraid to die. Much like Peter. I believe that Demas abandoned the Apostle Paul in a critical time when Paul needed him most. Like Peter, when Jesus needed him most at a very critical moment. I believe that because Demas saw the potential cost associated with staying with Paul in Rome under the watchful eye of this evil, unpredictable tyrant, this maniac emperor, Nero, I believe that Paul knew that he was about to be martyred and I believe that Paul was ready to go be with Jesus, but Demas was not. I believe that Demas was happy to live for Jesus. He just wasn't real excited about dying for him. The Bible says that he, did, that, that, that he forsook me, he left me, he departed from me, having loved this present world. You know, Demas did not choose to stay in Rome. If this, and, and by the way, this having loved this present world can mean many things. It does not mean that he forsook Jesus, but he did forsake his commitment to Paul. He did forsake his commitment to a hardship. He did forsake his commitment to help. He did forsake his commitment to stand in the face of, of, of adversity like Peter had forsaken his commitment to stand and over my dead body you'll be taken. And all of a sudden he says, I don't know him. The romance of it quickly left. I believe if Demas had have wanted to become a sinner, I believe if Demas had have gone back into the world, that we would have seen Demas stay in Rome. Rome was one of the most sinful places. You could hide and get lost in Rome, but he didn't. You know, Demas went back home to Thessalonica where both the Apostle Paul and Demas had to have been well known. Letters had gone out over the past five years and, and, and missionary visits had gone out and he went back to a place where there was a thriving, growing church. He went back to a place, he went home. He went back to church. He went back to a place that was safe, a place where he could not feel the, 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 the pressure of having to be persecuted and having to risk death and life and limb for something that simply made him afraid. The scriptures don't indicate that Demas backslid, only that he loved this world and had yet to come to the place where the apostle Paul or where Christ was to love the next more than this. Paul said, for I long to be clothed upon with the glory. 
I long to put off this mortal shell and to embrace an eternal immortality, incorruptible and undefiled. I long, Paul said. Perhaps Demas simply had an affection for life, specifically his own life. And perhaps in his moment, he traded his loyalty to his friend. Maybe he compromised his personal integrity and ran to safety to save his own life. Although, as I believe, he did not fall into blatant, lust-filled sin. Although I believe that Demas would not have chosen Thessalonica as a place to go to if he wanted to fall back into a lust-filled, sinful life. I believe it's even reasonably understandable that under the pressure that from many standpoints, what he did seemed reasonable and logical. Nonetheless, it was considered by Paul and by everyone since to be a cowardly act worthy of the Apostle Paul calling attention to it in the Scriptures. Paul discredited Demas for not standing for Christ in the face of imminent persecution. That should be a lesson to us. Demas departed to Thessalonica. Only Luke, he says, remained with Paul to face the acts of Nero. It can be a temptation, by the way, to love Jesus and yet be too much on guard against the scrutiny of others. It can be a temptation to be a closet Christian. It can be a temptation to have just enough Jesus in your life to get you to eternity, but not enough to get anyone else there. It can be a temptation to not prepare your family or your friends for a certainty called death. Though you might avoid it, though you might escape it time after time, though you might find a place of safety, yet it will catch up with you and with everyone else you will ever meet. It can be a temptation. Many a believer in Christ has fallen prey to dimming their light just enough to keep from being persecuted, to keep from standing out in public, to keep from encountering any unwelcomed scrutiny. Just enough to keep others from knowing that you're a Christian. To love this world can manifest in several ways. It can manifest in vices and lust of the flesh in such magnitude that sin just runs rampant in your life. Or it can manifest as simply a fear of loss. 
fear of losing anything from reputation to comfort to money to friends, even to your life. This morning, I want to draw your conscious considerations to the fact that the devil will try his very best to keep you from getting saved. If he cannot keep you from being saved, he will attempt to get you to act like you're not saved. If he cannot keep you from being saved, if he cannot keep you from embracing that salvation, he will do his best to get you to live like a sinner so that your light does not shine to others. He hopes to trick us into being quiet about our salvation so that no one else can accuse you, persecute you, so that you lose nothing in this world and gain a world to come. Don't let the devil deceive you. Don't let the devil make you afraid of losing friends, reputation. Don't let the devil convince you that you have enough Jesus to get to heaven. Everybody else can just go to hell. The fear of compromise and threats and the shame that Demas encountered were all unnecessary, were an unnecessary epitaph for Demas. You see, Luke was there and he wasn't martyred. Demas most likely would not have been either. The fear, the compromise, the threats and the shame were an unnecessary epitaph for Demas. And they would be an unnecessary epitaph for you. But you see, the bloodthirsty hate the blameless. There's nothing you can do about that. If you live righteous, you're going to be persecuted. Why? Well, the Bible says all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You might say, well, I'm not being persecuted for being a Christian. Well, wonder why. Every time somebody calls me, that preacher, that pastor, oh, you know, he just, oh, just bring it on. <laughs> Praise God, bring it on. It's one of the signs that you're doing what you should be doing. Beware, the Bible says, when all men speak well of you, for so did their, their fathers to the false prophets. Also says, do not marvel, my brother, and if the world hates you. Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And I'll encourage you with these closing words from Matthew. Let your light so shine before men that others may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You may notice there's not a New Testament book called Demas. But there is one called Luke. Wow. 
Get saved. Act saved. And tell your friends.